few weeks. Oh, uh, if you are a small child who is children church appropriate, uh, do not walk to the gifts. Instead, follow Jessica uh, downstairs. You can cry all you want, little girl. You have to go. Don't worry. The ones who should be crying are the ones who have to stay. <laughs> wow. What do you think you are, the government? Come on, that was funny. All right. Uh, bringing it back together. For the last few weeks, we've been working our way through um, our Christmas series. And what I've been doing uh, with this particular series, I, I'm going to tell you, Christmas is a difficult season to preach. Because anybody who's been going to church for any length of time has heard approximately 87,000 Christmas sermons. And there are a certain collection of texts that are traditionally associated with Christmas. And it is short of like just redoing the sermon every year, which I think I could um, because, because it's a whole year in between. You'd probably forget. Um, it, it, it's just sometimes difficult to put together a series that is a different approach or um, – um, a different perspective or what have you, uh, something that would be, be edifying. And so what I've been doing this season, I've been doing um, a devotion series or a devotion book that was based on Dietrich Bonhoeffer's writings. And um, I, they're divided up into themes for each week. And, and this week we're going to be talking about salvation or redemption, um, you know, and, and as it relates to Christmas. And, and um Actually, I'm going to read a quote. I do not often read chunks of text to the room, but I can't do it better than, than Von Hoffer did. Um, this is from um, his – this is before he was in prison. This is in 1933. Um, Bonhoeffer actually escaped Germany and lived in England and in the United States for several years before returning home because he decided it was better to go home and minister to his people um, in Germany – um, and, and to speak out against the evil that was happening there than to, like, just, you know, stay in safety. And so he went back to Germany. He spoke out against the Nazi party, and he uh, was ultimately arrested and executed. Um, but this is from his uh, Advent sermon in London in 1933. Um, and I'm going to read this chunk here. Um, uh, you know what a mind disaster is. In recent weeks, we have had to read about one in the newspapers. Uh, the, moment even, the moment even the most courageous miner has dreaded his whole life long is here. It is no use running into the walls. The silence all around him remains. So he's talking about these guys being buried in mines. And I, I've read a little bit about this. Actually, I read in an unrelated book like how people responded historically to these same mine disasters. How, how different groups of people responded. And these are people who are like three or four miles underground. And suddenly the earth collapses on them, and there's very little chance of them being rescued, um, especially the guys in the deepest, deepest parts of the mine. Silence around him remains. The way out for him is blocked. He knows the people up there are working feverishly to reach the miners who are buried alive. Perhaps someone will be rescued, but here in the last shaft, an agonizing period of waiting and dying is all that remains. But suddenly, a noise that sounds like tapping and breaking in the rock can be heard. 
Unexpectedly, voices cry out, Where are you? Help is on the way. Then the disheartened miner picks himself up. His heart leaps and he shouts, Here I am. Come on through and help me. I'll hold out until you come. Just come soon. A final desperate hammer blow to his ear. Now the rescue is near. Just one more step and he is free. We have spoken of Advent itself. That is how it is with the coming of Christ. Look up and raise your heads because the redemption is drawing near. Um, from Bonhoeffer's uh, December 3rd, 1933 sermon. Um, and it's actually, he's preaching on the text, Luke 21:28. Now, when these things uh, begin to take place, stand and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Um, the reason I picked this, and the reason I, I think it's, it's worth starting with is, um, it's easy to lose sight of the situation that we have as people. Um, because the whole world is telling us all the time, um, do what you want, you know, it can't be that bad. That sin is sort of relative. If I'm enjoying it, or, you know, who cares what these morals are, this is what I want to do, and so it's good. Um, or that, that, you know, certain things have become old-fashioned and don't apply anymore. Like, like we all live um, under the consequence of sin. Um, I... I and, and most of us never end up in a spot where we're at the bottom or we have to face our own mortality and the reality that we're going to stand before God um, as we are uh, without Christ or with Christ. Like, like it's just easy to lose sight of. Um, it's one of, the, one of the things that I think um, can take a lot of the, the seriousness of Christmas away because unless you realize that Christ is saving us like in the last possible moment, um, you don't get the weight of it. Um, I, I really like action movies. I really like, uh, I, we watched uh, Abby and Titus and Jess and I watched the last episode of the, the Mandalorian this week. And those of y'all who have seen it, like there's this last minute, oh my gosh, we're going to die. This is the end of us moment. And suddenly they're rescued. And there's your spoiler. Congratulations. Um, <laughs> and, and it's from where you wouldn't expect. And they swoop in and they save them. And that's always the best part of an action movie, right? Like, oh, wow, we're pretty hosed now. And suddenly the hero comes in and rescues you at the most desperate moment. This is what Christmas really is. Um, Christmas is I am dead in my trespasses and sin. Um, for me, it was... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm dead and drinking myself to death physically. For, for some of us it is, I'm dead inside, but I chase after, like, happiness in places that I'm never going to find it. Like, like on the internet or in the arms of other people or, or in possession or in the pride that I'm better than you or whatever kind of nonsense we convince ourselves is going to make us happy and, like, make our lives worthwhile. You know, you only live once, let's do it kind of thing. And, and we can easily forget that only in Christ are we saved. Um, and so as we dive into this text, um, we're going to be in Luke um, chapter 2, verses 4 to 20. And, and we're going to talk about kind of the weight and significance of this sin and salvation thing in light of what the shepherds encountered. Um, I have preached this particular text like t- every year because I love it. Um, and I love it because, uh, because of where it takes place and what happens. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth. I've got to hold this closer because my eyes aren't that good. I'm 
kind of embarrassing. Uh, the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in the manger, because there was no guest room available for them. Um, so they have arrived and Christ is born. And like Luke chapter 2, there's a whole lot of stuff that happens in chapter 1 that like we're kind of skipping over. Angels showing up and, and um, visions and, and all kinds of other stuff. I mean, it's a really great account. And Luke gives us a unique perspective because Luke is a guy who came along afterwards and interviewed people who were there. Luke is the only, um, I guess Mark is not an eyewitness, Mark wrote his book based on Peter's preaching. So, like, he took notes based on Peter. And, like, that's where Mark's book comes from. Um, Luke was assigned the task of researching the story of Jesus. And so, like, we get a unique perspective from him. We get Mary's point of view. We get a bunch of other stuff that is unique to Luke because he went and talked to these people and wrote down what they had to say. Um, and in this particular instance, so, like, Jesus has been born. They've traveled. They're in Bethlehem in the city of David, and Jesus is born. And we're going to jump on from there. And there were and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping a watch over their flocks at night. Now, I'm going to pause, okay? Um, anybody who's heard me talk about Christmas has heard me say this. So this is the time for you to tune out and everybody who's new to, to listen carefully. Shepherds in that cultural time were garbage, right? Like shepherds were amongst a class of people who were not allowed to testify in court. So if I were to murder someone in front of a group of shepherds, they couldn't testify against me because the assumption of all Jewish people was every shepherd is a liar. And there's so much liars that they can't testify in court. Right? Like, it was assumed, and, and I talked about this many times, shepherds would often be buried with a handful of wool in their hand so that when they arrived to face God, they could present their wool as their excuse for never having gone to temple. Because if you were a shepherd and you left your sheep behind and you went to the temple, what would happen to your sheep? Nothing good. Somebody would steal them or they'd be killed or eaten or they'd run away or whatever, like shepherds, so, so shepherds couldn't participate in temple. And so like they had a unique position in the culture. The scriptures talk highly about them, but then you get into the Jewish literature and they got nothing nice to say. Um, they, were, they were human garbage in the eyes of the ancient Jews. And so these human garbage guys are out there near Bethlehem. Now, the location is a big deal. And the location, an ancient Jew would read this, and they would associate it with a particular spot, right? And I'm going to jump into Micah real quick. We'll come back to that Luke text. But Micah 4 and Micah 5, we're going to read um, in these prophecies. Um, As for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. Um, and then 5. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrath, Ephrathath, Ephrathath, my Hebrew is awful. Um, 
Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. This is actually the text, the Micah 5 is the text that, um, like when Herod is asked about, like, oh, where's the Messiah going to be born? Oh, Bethlehem. That's the text that made them decide that. So just outside of Bethlehem, there was this place, and i got to look up the name because I can't just say it, Migdal Adair, Migdal Adair, which means Tower of the Flock, is this place. It's about a mile east of Bethlehem, right? And this place is where um, these shepherds probably were, right? It was a common grazing location. And now watch this. This is interesting. Mishnah, which is like the early Jewish rabbis, like the first collection of of arguments and teachings and everything else from the early Jewish rabbis, um, the the Mishnah identifies this is a location that, like, if you want to sacrifice sheep in the temple, so like if you have a you know if you have a sacrifice. This is a location that it was acceptable to draw these sheep from. And, like, we know that this Tower of the Flock location, Migdal, I'm just going to not even say that, Tower of the Flock, um, this location would have been a spot that the temple would have been able to draw sacrifices from. And they're told, hey, um, something huge is going to come out of this location. And Bethlehem itself, something huge is coming from there. Like, so the suburbs here and all this. And so these shepherds are there, and the shepherds would have known that they had a special spot in relation to this. So when the angels come and start talking to them and start talking about the Messiah and all that, they'd be like, wait a minute, like, Tower of the Flock, this is where we're at. Um, so you have this location, this, this Tower of the Flock. The shepherds are there. The angel comes and talks to them. Now, why is the shepherd thing significant? Well, we're going to look at a couple of texts for this. This is John chapter 1. I baptize you with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan, um, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man comes after me um, who is after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I, can, I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. So John the Baptist, who has this huge following, is out there baptizing people and calling them to repentance and predicting that big things are coming. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up and he says, hey, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? For us, we've heard this a million times, right? We sing songs about it. It's in texts and everything else. For ancient Jews, sheep were a big deal because, number one, you pretty much needed them to have clothes and milk, right? Because people didn't really, you know, cows were difficult, right? Like sheep were much easier in this setting because if you butchered a sheep, you could eat the whole thing in just a week before it started rotting, whereas cows are a little bigger and takes a lot more effort and whatnot. And so, like, sheep are kind of the center of the economy. But also, um, there are certain sacrifices that took place in the Jewish culture, in the Jewish temple system, that could only involve sheep. And so we're in this location where these sheep are being raised. The angels show up and talk to the shepherds because the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is coming. From there, we're going to jump into Hebrews, okay? He is all over the place. You're going to get to a point here? Um, 
in Hebrews, like Hebrews is a fantastic but exceptionally difficult book, right? Hebrews was written to sort of harmonize Jesus to the theological system of the Jews, right? And like over and over again, Jesus is put in relation to these theological systems and they're made sense because Christ is in relation to him. So they say, well, what about Moses? Is Jesus more important than Moses? Yes, Jesus is more important than Moses, and here's why. Or like angels, well, where's Jesus in relation to the angels? Well, here's how that works. Um, and then there's this whole part where he talks about the tabernacle. And he says, all right, so the ancient sacrificial system, everything was symbolic. Everything was symbolic. And actually, the Old Testament is full of awesome symbolism. Like when you start reading the Old Testament, you will find all of these little recurring things that trace out. It's called the scarlet thread that runs through scripture. And it tells the story of Christ before he showed up. So in Hebrews 10, the law is only a shadow of good things that are coming, not the reality themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty of their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So what the author of Hebrews is saying is, listen, the law was always pointing forward to something better. And the sacrifices, because you would do these sacrifices, like if I were to, I don't know, go out and kill DJ. I'd have to offer sacrifices for my sins, right? Like in that sacrifice, like you'd take a lamb in and the lamb would take my guilt on it and I would go free and they'd sacrifice the lamb and it would get punished in my place and that was the whole system. Like you would transfer your guilt. But the author of Hebrews says, listen, that doesn't work because in reality, we all know that you can't transfer your guilt to a sheep. You just can't. And if you could, you wouldn't just keep doing it every year, right? I mean... It's almost like, um, do you ever meet somebody who has a compulsion to check things over and over again? Like checking the lock on the door. Did I lock the door? Did I lock the door? Every night when I go to bed, I check the front door about 12 times because I'm the only person in Big Sandy who locks my doors. Um, but I still have to check it. You know why? <laughs> because i got to check it over and over again because I walk away and I think, is that door really closed right? And I'll go back like 20 minutes later. I'll lay in bed and read for a while. And I, oh, i got to get up and go to the bathroom. Might as well check the front door while I'm up. You know, over and over again, because I want to make sure the house is locked and I'm secure. What I'm <laughs> I, now, now, <laughs> um, and so he's saying, listen, that sacrifice, you would only have to do it once if it was effective, but it's not effective. Instead, it is a shadow of something that is coming, not the reality itself. Um, it is not the real thing. It is just a like an image that's projected and not even a very clear image. And so like it's impossible for that, that sacrifice to take away sin. It's just a foreshadowing or a type or a typology is actually the theological term. Um, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. Not the right. I'm going to read that text twice apparently. 
Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duty. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when the priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he is made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So the author of Hebrews moves on. He says, listen, those sacrifices can't do anything. Instead, the priest, the man himself, the son of God, steps into the world and offers a sacrifice for the sins of mankind. And everything else is pointing forward to that. It's a little like watching a movie preview, right? Like whenever a movie, you know, like we've all watched previews before, you know, coming soon. (laughs) It's not the movie. It's just an image of what it will be, right? It's just a description of the real thing. And it's not until you actually sit down and watch the movie that you see the movie. In the same way, Christ is the real thing. Everything before him was a preview. And so, and so, and so, in our Luke 2 passage, we have where these guys are out there, and they're at the Tower Rock where the sacrifices for the temple are drawn, right? Like, like it's all connected, and it's not connected accidentally. Micah predicted it was going to be connected, right? So these sacrifices that are offered in the temple, they come from this place in particular because Micah predicted that it would come out of there, and they're told, hey, something big is happening. Like the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so the guys who are first present, because we all know this story, right? The guys who are first present to witness it, are the guys who would have been raising the sacrifices themselves. The guys who would have been bringing out the sheep that would be sacrificed for the sins of the people every year. The guys who are like handling the preview to the episode or to the movie um, are out there in the field. That's who we're talking about. And like it is coming. So when Christ comes, it is the real thing. And it makes us holy. We don't offer additional sacrifices. I don't give money to be forgiven. I don't have to go out and kill sheep in my yard to be forgiven. I believe in Christ who offered a sacrifice that cleanses me and makes me holy. Because I'm awesome? Absolutely not. Anybody who knows me halfway decent knows I, I screw up all the time. I, I screw up. I'm... I'm I'm a fallen man, like, and everyone in this room is in the same boat, so don't get high and mighty about it. Um, But Christ came and died for us. The Holy Spirit testifies about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts and I will write it on their minds. Um, And then he adds their sins and acts of lawlessness. I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. And so the author of Hebrews is explaining, why don't we do sacrifices anymore? Well, because Jesus was the sacrifice. That's it. Um, So the shepherds at the location, tending the flocks that would go into the temple to be sacrificed, they are there. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and said, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But, he, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. 
This is a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, I could talk all day about all the weird little symbols and connections. Like every covenant, like you go through the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is actually a series of contracts that God makes with men, right? You have the beginning, the Adamic covenant. That's not a swear word. It's Adam, Adamic, Adamic. Anyway, um, where he says, hey, enjoy the garden. Fellowship with me. Live forever. Just don't eat off that tree, right? And the next thing you know, they are eating off the tree. And from there, we have the Noahic covenant where God says, I'm going to kill all the bad people. And only good people will be left. And it turns out the good people... They were kind of crappy too, right? Like because the very first thing that Noah does is plant a vineyard and get drunk and curse one of his kids and chase him out of the house forever. Because you know what? If you saved all of the good people in the world and left like by wiping out the bad people, who would be left? No one. <laughs> because we're all rotten. We're all wicked. We're all fallen. And even if we try our hardest, we'll screw up. From there, it becomes the, the Mosaic Covenant, for, or Abrahamic, and then Moses, and then David, and then the New Covenant. And this text alone, there's like seven different things that connect to these covenants, and it's all coming to a moment, to a culmination, right? And that's always the best thing in movies, right? When it's three or four little hints that have been dropped in the film, and everything is hopeless, and we're all going to die, and suddenly the hero comes, and all of these threads come together, and it all works out, and they're rescued. That's Easter, or that's Christmas. That is the hero showing up to save us. Only we're already dead because we're dead in our trespasses. We're dead in our sins. We're dead in our self-centeredness. We're dead in our, our fleshly indulgence and our chasing after things that are wicked and, and, and everything else. Like We're already dead, but because Christ came, we're saved. Because Christ carried the weight of our sins, we're saved. And who does he pick to go? The human garbage of society, right? Like the worst people in the world. It's a little like showing up to a, well, a halfway house. You know, these guys are coming out of prison, and they're in the prison for, you know, guys who do horrible things to children or something. But come on, guys, you're going to witness the birth of Jesus. It's crazy. The story of Christ is the upside-down version of the world where the most wicked and fallen are raised up. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angels, praising God and saying, Glory to God, glory to God in the highest of heavens, um, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Um, you say, oh, well, there hasn't been peace on earth like ever. There's always a war happening somewhere. But for those of us who are blessed to know Christ, for those of us who are saved by that final sacrifice, um, peace between me and God exists. Peace between you and God can exist. We can know the God who is the creator of the universe, who sent his son to die for us, and we can be at peace with him. And I'm going to tell you, not being at peace with God is a bad idea, because he's bigger than us. Right? And the worst thing he can do is let us have our own way, because we'll eventually find our way into a deep, dark, ugly, nasty, bitter hole, and we'll drown ourselves in the muck. When the angels had left them and gone to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. 
when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what they heard. The shepherds said to them, or the, what, and what the shepherds had said to them. Um, but Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in their heart. In her heart. So, by the way, Mary did know. Um, the sh- really, nobody's going to laugh at that. <laughs> um, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just that they had been told. Um, and so, like this moment right here is, and watch this. I think I've kind of pounded this home, but I want to say it one last time. This is the shepherds who would be raising sheep for sacrifice in the temple, gathering around the Lamb of God, who would be offered as the final sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. These guys raised the shadows, and they stood before the real thing. Not only that, they were human refuse in their culture. Nobody had a high opinion of these guys. And they were the ones who were blessed because Christ came not for the righteous, but for the wicked. Not for the healthy, but for the sick. Not for the religiously perfect, but for people like me. People like you. It's amazing. I wanted to close this message with a line from uh, Bonhoeffer. Uh, And before I jump into that, this is a very, like, last thing. What do we do with this? It's easy to get into this mindset that Christmas is like Christmas special territory. What's Christmas about? Joy and peace and having your heart grow three times larger and that you can take everything away from the Who's in Whoville and they'll still go out and sing and, and all this other stuff. Like, oh, it's the most wonderful, happy, heartwarming time of year. It's only that way if there's something bigger attached to it. Otherwise, it's whistling in the dark and hoping for the best. It's only that way if there's a tapping on the other side of the rocks and you're down in the mine shaft saying, God, please save me, and suddenly God breaks through the wall and pulls you to safety. It's only that way if it's about Christ. Otherwise, it's wishful thinking. And so as we celebrate Christmas, bring yourself back to this point where you say, this is about Christ dying for me. This is about God stepping into the world. Or as Bonhoeffer wrote, Only when we have felt the terror of the matter can we recognize the incomparable kindness. God comes into the very midst of evil and death and judges the evil in us and in the world. And by judging us, God cleanses and sanctifies us, coming to us with grace and love. God wants to always be with us wherever we may be. In our sin, suffering, and death, we are no longer alone because God is with us. Enjoy the world. God is with us. When we're stuck in the dark and hopeless, God is with us. When we're drowning in our sin, God is with us. When we're so blind we can't even see that we need to be saved. God is with us. Merry Christmas, guys. Praise Emmanuel. God is with us. I'm closing prayer. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for this season. 
Not because of the gifts, not because of the lights, not because of the trees, not because of the cookies, not because of family getting together, though I do like the cookies. I praise you, God, that you're with us. That I can know the creator of the universe. That I can wake up in the morning and know that I, I have a future because he lives. That I can go to bed at night and instead of laying there and torturing myself with my guilt over my sins, instead of laying there empty and hopeless, I can lay there and know that if I don't wake up, I'll stand with you. Lord God, I praise you for the blessing that you bring us in Christmas. I praise you for the redemption that comes in Christ. And I pray that everybody in this room would know Christ and know that redemption and know the joy that comes with being in your presence. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Have a good Sunday, folks.